0: I'm going to head back to your seats. Peace be with y'all. It's good to be with you guys this morning. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I'm, uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. Uh, we're very glad that you're here this morning. Uh, if you would, take a look at uh, the Connect card. It's a little bulletin insert. Uh, you received it when you uh, when you got your bulletin here this morning. Um, and if you would, just take a moment, fill that out. We'd love to get to know a little bit of information about you, know how we can be praying for you, um, know how we can reach out and, and encourage you um, and, and potentially get you plugged into what God is doing here in our church family. We'd love to reach out if uh, you'd allow us to be praying for you if, you, if you'd allow us to. So please take a moment, fill that out, hand it to myself or another uh, leader that you've seen up here this morning, or there's a bucket in the back, there's a black box in the welcome table. You could uh, hand it in, uh, to any of those people or place it any of those places, and, and um, we'll make sure to uh, to get a hold of you. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah 9.38 to 10.39, we're looking at Nehemiah 9.38 to 10.39, Nehemiah 9.38 to ten. Thirty-nine, And that'll be found on page 230 on the white or blue paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those, turn to page 230. That will get you where you need to go. Uh, so, uh, and, and if you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and, and, uh, and make that your own, read it, um, and, uh, and take ownership over that Bible. Uh, that's our gift to you. Please take it. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's dig into God's word. If you want to stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to read all of Nehemiah nine thirty eight through ten thirty nine, and let's listen with reverence and joy because this is the inspired word of our God. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hekeliah, Zedekiah, Saraiah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Melchijah, Hattish, Shebaniah, Malek, Haram, Meremoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnithon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these are the priests, and the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui, the sons of Henadad; Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hadiah, Kalidah, Peleah, Hanan, Micah, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zachar, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hadiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Perash, Payeth Moab, Elam, Zatu, Benai, Bunai, Asgad, Bebe, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Ater, Hezekiah, Azur, Hadiah, Hashem, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpish, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshezebel, Zadok, Jedua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Enea, Hosea, Hananiah, Hashab, Helohash, Pilha. Shobek, Rehum, Hashabna, Maaseiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Haram, Baana. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt." We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the firstfruits of our ground and the firstfruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers, and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless the reading and proclamation of your word with the power and presence of your Spirit. Anoint it in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Oh, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. When the gospel writer Mark sums up the message of Jesus in Mark 1.15, he writes, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent. Now, that word repent is a word that we don't hear much today. Uh, It's not a word we typically have much familiarity with, especially if we don't have much of a church background. And unfortunately, even those of us who have an extensive church background often don't have much familiarity with the word either. We don't often know what it means to repent. We don't know what it looks like when someone repents. According to Jesus, though, this this is the response he demands to the proclamation of his word. This is what he demands if someone is going to enter his kingdom, his people, his family. And so we must know what it means to repent. We must become familiar with what it looks like to repent. And thankfully for us, last Sunday and this Sunday... We see a beautiful description of repentance in Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. In Nehemiah chapter 8, God's people hear God's word read and preached in the square. In chapters 9 and 10, their response is repentance chapters 9 and 10 give us the the sort of two sides of the coin of repentance. There are two stages in this act of repentance. And the first is, is the stage of turning away from sin, the stage of confession. They confess their sins in Nehemiah 9. And the second is the stage of turning toward God, the the stage of commitment, covenant commitment. In Nehemiah 9, we saw the people confess their sins and turn to the Lord uh, and, and confess their sins to the Lord in sorrow and conviction. And this morning, we see in Nehemiah 10, we see God's people turn toward God in covenant commitment. And this is how God demands we respond to his word. So we're going to dig into this. We see in Nehemiah 9.38 through 10.39, what we see is that in response to God's faithfulness, uh, God's people are committed to be faithful to him. In response to God's faithfulness, God's people are committed to be faithful to him. And we're going to explore that big idea by looking first at, at a public promise in uh, 10, 1 through 29, a practical promise in verses 30 through 39, and then a promise keeping God in nine thirty eight. Now first, we see the people of God making a public promise of commitment. In uh, verses 1 through 27 of chapter 10, you see a list of names, um, and, and you probably thought it was ridiculous that we read that, uh, but the, this, this is important because this is the list of representatives of the people as they sign the covenant. You see Nehemiah's name there as the governor, you see the list of priests, uh, their names there in verses 1 through 8, then you see the Levites, so those, are, those are like the priests' assistants and, uh, in, in uh, verses 9 through 13, and then verses 14 through 27 contains the names of the chiefs of the people, um, those are kind of prominent figures in the community and leaders in the community. Uh, and, and, and you see this list of names uh, here because the people are participating in a covenant ceremony, a ceremony in which they are making a public promise. And uh, much like what you just saw Um, the the new members of Veritas doing up here just moments ago. And the names are listed here um, because a covenant has to be signed, typically is going to be signed to take effect, right? Um, Think about a marriage ceremony where a couple exchanges their vows and the minister makes a pronouncement, but then what's left after? There's the the signing of the marriage certificate, signed after the public vows and the pronouncement has been made, and the document needs to be signed. Um, But not all of these thousands and thousands, 30, 40, 50,000 people here in Nehemiah 10 can sign the document. So they have representatives that sign on their behalf. But then as verse 28 shows us, it's not just the leaders who are making the covenant. It's it's everyone. It says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants. And and not only that, but then the recent converts to Judaism, those who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of of God, those who are outside of the Jewish people ethnically, but who have converted to Judaism, and uh, and he goes on, he says, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and His rules and His statutes. So what's taking place is all the people are gathering together for public worship to make a public promise to obey the Lord. Okay, they're, they're recommitting themselves and renewing their dedication to the Lord and to the covenant that he made with the people of Israel through Moses. And it's all very formal and, and public and official. A covenant always is. I know that we typically don't like formal things and, and official things like that, but uh, a covenant is a formal public promise, typically sealed by the signing of a, of a legal document. And now, we need to understand that uh, this is not actually a new covenant, though. Rather, this is a renewal of a commitment to an old covenant, particularly the old covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant that God established with the people of Israel through Moses. And this is the covenant that, that God made with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Uh, at Sinai, God established the old covenant with the people of Israel. And here, the people of Israel are renewing their commitment to that covenant. And that's actually, uh, you know, that's actually the difference between uh, establishing a covenant and renew, uh, a renewing of a covenant. may um, so maybe putting it a little too simply, but to make a covenant is to make a public promise. And then to, uh, to, uh, it's, it's to make a public promise and, and to renew a covenant. In and, and a covenant renewal ceremony, uh, people uh, make a public promise to keep a public promise that they've already made. So that's what's going on here. Uh, and we talked about it last week, uh, about how at times, um, maybe uh, after a difficult season of marriage or a significant anniversary, a married couple will renew their vows to one another. Uh, they're renewing their commitment and making a public promise to keep a public promise that they've already made. And that's what's happening here. The people are, are uh, publicly and as a community making a promise to keep a promise. They're entering into this covenant renewal ceremony. And uh, you may or may not know this, but Veritas, you actually participate in this in this very thing every week when we participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, We're participating every week when we gather around the table, we're participating in a covenant renewal ceremony. You know, baptism and the Lord's Supper are are signs and seals of the new covenant established in Jesus Christ by the shedding of his blood. Uh, Baptism is is connected with our entrance into the covenant, and the Lord's Supper is connected with uh, sort of ongoing covenant renewal. Uh, And as the, the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith puts it so well, like together, baptism and the Lord's Supper are, are simultaneously God's pledge to us, and they're divinely ordered means of grace, and they are our public vows of submission to the once crucified and risen, resurrected Christ. They are divinely ordered means of grace. Simultaneously, God is pledging to us, he's promising to us, he's renewing his commitment to us and we're, we're offering our public vows, our public promises of submission to the once crucified and now resurrected Christ. And so that's what's taking place whenever we participate in baptism in the Lord's Supper. There's seals and confirmation documents of God's commitment to us and our response of commitment to Him. And uh, I, I really want us to grasp the significance of that because you know perhaps you, we, we do this every single week. Perhaps you... You've been approaching the Lord's Supper every week in a, in a sort of humdrum, passive, mindless, or irreverent way. You know, you've not been giving the table uh, its due weight and significance. You've not been mindful of the Lord's promises as you approach the table. You've not been mindful of, of your uh, vows to him to live lives of trust and, and repentance and commitment to him that are renewed at the table You know, at the table, we're meeting with Christ. We're meeting with Christ, and he's making a public promise to keep a public promise, and we're making a public promise to keep a promise that we've made. What's going on at the table? And the Israelites, they're participating in that type of ceremony here. But then they're not only making a public promise here, they're also making a practical promise here. Making a practical promise here. And part of what should strike us as we read chapter 10 is that these people, they're serious. They're serious about holiness. They're serious about obedience. They're serious about being committed to God. And so much so that they don't just make some sort of, you know, vague, abstract commitment to obedience. The public promise that they make here is very practical. It's a promise that affects the entirety of their lives. It's a promise that affects their their practical, daily, ordinary way of life. It affects the way that they order their families. It affects the way that they order their schedules. It affects the way that they order their finances and and possessions and and, and properties. And look at what they say in verse 30. They say, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. You see, it affects their families. People of God always have been and must always be a people who are distinct and set apart from the world. And in light of this, the the Jews were to adhere to a strict code of separation from their neighbor's religions. And one way that they continued to struggle with compromising on this front is through marrying those outside of the faith. Marrying those uh, outside of the faith, they were consistently struggling with this, and it brought religious compromise right into their homes and into their families. As Derek Thomas points out in his commentary on Nehemiah, in the ancient world, when, when someone married, they swapped idols, and they would give these idols prominent places in their homes. And of course, that would be a problem for the people of God who who confessed the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, The Lord your God, the Lord is one. They vowed to worship the Lord only because he is the one true God. All other gods are false gods, and he alone ought to be glorified, honored, and praised as God. And yet because the people of God had married outside of the faith throughout the years, they continued to be plagued by this false worship and idolatry. You might remember this. This is what led Solomon, the great king, falling into idolatry. You might remember uh, King Ahab married Jezebel, which led to the, the worship of Baal in the northern kingdom. Particularly in Ezra and Nehemiah, the problem of marrying outside of the faith had grown worse and worse. And you know we should say about this as well that that this ban on marrying outside of the faith was not itself a, ma- a ban on marrying outside of their race. You know texts like this I, I know they've been used and abused in the past to to argue for such ideologies like ethnic cleansing and the like and, and uh, such claims and arguments are are ignorant and wicked and idolatrous. You know there were people present in this text who were making this covenant who were not Jews by birth but by conversion. Likewise, prominent figures in the Bible, like Ruth and Boaz, were married, although Ruth was a Moabite and not a Jew. Yet she worshiped the Lord alone and converted to the faith. Therefore, her marriage to Boaz is an exemplary marriage and celebrated in the Bible. There's a whole book of the Bible about her. You know, this, this, this ban on not marrying outside of uh, the, the faith is not a ban on marrying outside of their race. And furthermore, we should we should also recognize that restrictions on marrying outside of the faith continue in the new covenant. Of course, in Christ, you know, Paul says, Galatians 3 28, there's no Jew or Gentile. Indeed, if you're a Christian, you have you have more in common with someone of a different race or ethnicity who is a Christian than you do with people of your own race and ethnicity who aren't Christians. So we're free to marry outside of our race, and, and that's, that's good, and that's celebrated, and, and, and we ought to do that. However, the New Testament continues to prohibit Christians marrying unbelievers, marrying outside of the faith. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, for those of you who are single and who desire to be married, you need to remember this. Being in this covenant community, being in, in a covenant relationship with the Lord affects your practical daily life. It affects your family life, your marital life. It affects who you choose as a spouse. And for all of us, for every single one of us, when you signed up When you were converted, you promised to submit to Jesus as your covenant Lord. And that includes how you approach family and marriage and parenting. And next we see the the people make a practical promise concerning the Sabbath day. Look at verse 31. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. So not only does the covenant practically affect their family life, but it also affects their weekly schedules. As you might know, the the Sabbath in the Old Covenant was, was the sort of sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It was on the seventh day of the week, Saturday. It was the day that was set apart in the week for worship and rest. The people were not to work on that day, and rather than working, they were to devote themselves to worshiping God corporately and intentionally. And of course, in the New Covenant, we no longer worship on the seventh day, but uh, on the, as, as it were, on the eighth day, which is the first day of the week, because that's the day that Jesus ushered in the new creation. That's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. From the time of the apostles until now, people have always worshiped on the first day of the week. God's people have always worshiped on the first day of the week, Sunday, because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It's called the Lord's Day. Now, some Christians believe that the Lord's Day is the new Sabbath, And some Christians believe that it's a different thing than the Sabbath. And those who believe that the Lord's Day is the new Sabbath will refrain from doing any sort of work, unnecessary work, Uh, on Sunday, as well as gathering to worship with God's people, Uh, but those who believe that the Lord's day is a different thing than the Sabbath, a sort of new thing, simply devote themselves to worshiping on that day, uh, and then feel the freedom to work or recreate in whichever ways they see fit for the rest of the day, and there are people with both views in our church, and, and that's totally fine, and then there are also people in our church who maybe you just haven't thought about it, and so you don't have any view at all. You should give it some thought. Talk to me about this afterward. We can get you some good resources. But whatever whatever your view is, here's the thing, following Jesus, being a part of God's covenant people, ought to affect your life in really practical ways, including your schedule. Your schedule ought to reflect the fact that Jesus is Lord. You know, if, if, if someone were to look at your calendar, what would they conclude about what it is you worship? What, would, what, what is it that they would conclude? Uh, who, who, who do you submit to as Lord? What would they conclude about that? Is it the God of consumerism? Because you can't stop buying things and consuming things for one day of the week. Is it the God of sport or entertainment? Are you obsessed with football? Is it the God of marriage and children? Are, are you obsessed with, with marriage? Are you obsessed with family? So much to the point where it's idolatrous. Is it the God of work and productivity? You just can't put things down. Or if we were looking at your schedule, would we, would we conclude that you worship the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent? Your schedule reveals who or what it is you worship. What is it? Next, we see that being God's covenant people affects even the way we treat our property and possessions. Look at the latter part of verse 31. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, the piece about foregoing the crops every seventh year is in reference to what's called the Sabbath year. Uh, you find this in Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 11. Uh, every seventh year in the Old Covenant, God's people were to give the land rest from work. and It's God's prescribed way for the Israelites to participate in creation care. They believed wholeheartedly that the land was actually God's, and it was a gift from Him to them, and that He would put them there as stewards, and so they were to care for the land as such. And likewise, on the seventh year, God's people were to cancel all debts, that you know, probably makes those of you with student loans uh, kind of perk up your ears a little bit. You wish we did that. But yeah, the, every seventh year, they were to forego the exaction of debts among the poor and the needy who were in debt slavery. Of course, we saw earlier in Nehemiah, that the poor being in debt was a serious problem. The people were, were uh, struggling with oppressing the poor and, and, and putting uh, very heavy burdens on them and very heavy uh, debts on them. And they were being oppressed and, and mistreated by their own brothers and sisters. And so here God's people renew their commitment to love and care for the poor, the needy, and the oppressed in their midst by forgiving their debts every seven years. And then along those same lines, the the people continue to make commitments to financially support the worship of God's people. In verses 32 through 39, they list out their commitments to dedicate their firstborn children and their firstborn livestock. And the the dedication of the firstborn child required them to pay a certain payment for that child. And of course, the dedication of the firstborn livestock required them to, to surrender those animals to the priests at the temple for sacrifice. They also committed to giving money and wood and tithe their crops and their their, their fruit and everything to the temple as well. They committed all of this, they committed to all of this in order to fund the worship of God's people, the ongoing worship of God's people. They they summarize their motivation in verse thirty nine. They say, We will not neglect the house of our God. That was the heart behind their commitments, the generosity, to support the worship of God's people, so that God's people could worship God. And of course, the house of God is no longer a building, right? It's, it's no longer a temple in Jerusalem. The house of God and the new covenant is the people, the church, us. And our being followers of Jesus Christ and being God's covenant people still approaches, though, the way that we approach our finances and our possessions, doesn't it? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, the New Testament may not call us to give a, a particular percentage, like a tithe, but God's people are still to be generous. God's people, Paul says, must give, must be generous. God's people are still called to give, to support the worship of the household of God. God's people are still called to be generous to those in need in their midst. Like we said earlier about our schedules, your bank account says much about what it is you worship. Martin Luther once said that we must go through three conversions. Conversion of the head, conversion of the heart, conversion of the wallet. Of course, what he Meant by that is that one of the greatest proofs of true commitment to God and His kingdom is when someone is willing to sacrifice their bank account to support the worship and mission of the church. When someone is willing to sacrifice their their bank account to support a person or family in need in their midst, not exact debts. When Someone is willing to sacrifice their bank account to support the gospel being taken to people groups who have never heard. What about you? According to your bank statement, where does your commitment lie? You know, where where your treasure is, Jesus says, your heart will be also. What is it? Who is it that you worship? Yourself or God? Money or God? Possessions or God? Comfort or God? Were you withholding your wallet from the waters of baptism when you were baptized? Or have you undergone this conversion of the wallet? You see, the people here, they're not giving some sort of vague or abstract lip service to obedience and holiness. They are committing themselves to the Lord in response to all that he's done for them. And they're doing so in such a way that it affects them practically. It affects their, ordinarily, their, their ordinary daily lives. It affects their marriages and families. It affects their schedules. It affects their possessions and properties. It affects their finances, but we would also do well to remember why they commit themselves in such a way in the first place. Why are they making this public and practical promise? Well, look at verse 38 of chapter 9, first of all. Say, so because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Because of all this. Because of all of what? What? Because of the story of God's people that they rehearsed in their prayer of confession in chapter 9. If you weren't with us last week, we looked at chapter 9. And in it, God's people pray a really long prayer of confession. And the basic pattern is this. God, you are faithful and we are not. 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 You have kept your promises, and we have not. You upheld your vows, and we have not. You were true to your pledge, and we, have, we were not. And now because you are faithful, because you've kept your promises, because you've upheld your vows time and time again, because you've been true to your pledge, we respond in a wholehearted commitment to you, filled with gratitude and grace. That was their story. And Christian, that's your story too. You love because he first loved you. You're committed because he was first committed to you. You seek to obey because he first relentlessly sought you in his mercy, love, and grace. You sacrifice for the sake of his name because he came and sacrificed himself for you. Now, we we also should note something interesting here. If you haven't read Nehemiah before, you'd probably read this text with some sort of sense of, like, triumphant joy. People are are finally committed to the Lord. They're finally behaving like God's covenant people. Yay! But if you have read Nehemiah before, there's this sort of dissonant tone in the back of your mind playing as you read this text. Because you know that in just a few short chapters in Nehemiah 13... The very promises God's people are making here are broken. These public and practical promises that they signed their names to. They go back on them in Nehemiah 13, the Sabbath, they break it. They start working and buying and selling for merchants coming to the city on the Sabbath. the intermarriage is issue. They keep right on marrying outside the faith. supporting of the temple. stop, the priests act corruptly, they neglect the house of God. It reminds me of that song we so often sing, and I'll sing later this morning, every vow we've broken and betrayed, you are the faithful one. You see, if the keeping of the covenant ultimately relies on us, we're doomed. That's why Jesus came and established the new covenant. That's why the Son of God came from heaven and took upon Himself our humanity so that He could be one of us, and so that He could keep the covenant on our behalf, so that He could fulfill the law, so that He could be our representative who signs His name on our behalf. He came to establish the new covenant. He came to be the covenant keeper, the promise keeper on our behalf. And then, in His dying on the cross, He took the penalty for breaking the covenant, the penalty we deserve our failing to honor God in our families and marriages and romantic relationships, our failing to honor God with our schedules, our failing to honor God with our possessions, our properties, our finances, he took it all upon himself. And he was clothed in our sinfulness, although he was perfect. So that although we're sinful, we can be clothed in his covenant righteousness and his covenant faithfulness. Our record now is as, is as if we have perfectly kept the covenant. Because in the old covenant, God's people said, we will, we will, we will. All this we will do. We commit. And in the new covenant, Jesus says, I will, I will, I will. All this I will do. And I will gift it to you. We're the promise breakers, but he is the promise keeper. And because he's the promise keeper, because he's faithful, we're brought into the family at Christ's expense. Despite our past, despite our our unfaithfulness, despite our wickedness, we're counted faithful, we're counted righteous. And don't you see, that gives us the actual freedom and motivation to struggle to then be faithful. Knowing that God isn't going to give up on us, knowing that we're safe, knowing that our acceptableness before him doesn't depend on us, that he's not going to reject us, we're free. We're we're motivated to be faithful. We're free and motivated to rearrange our lives around what he's commanded us. We're free and motivated to approach our marriages and families differently. We're free and motivated to, to approach our schedules differently. We're free and motivated to approach our finances differently. We can say, like the Israelites here, because of all this, because of all of this, because of your faithfulness, because you have kept your promises, because you are the promise-keeping God, we are wholeheartedly committed to struggling for the rest of our lives to be obedient to you. In response to God's faithfulness, God's people are committed to be faithful to him. Every vow we've broken and betrayed, he is the faithful one. And now because of Christ, we're counted as being faithful and we're set free so that we actually can be. That's Nehemiah 10. That's Nehemiah nine thirty-eight through 10, 39. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this great covenant renewal ceremony, would you remind our hearts of the great pledge you've made to us in your Son, fully forgiven, fully accepted, freely forgiven, freely accepted, awaiting resurrection life, everlasting life forever, His return. And so would you remind us of what He's done in the past in establishing the covenant? Would you give us a present communion that we might Enjoy him and enjoy his presence. And would you give us assurance of our future hope that one day we're going to eat this meal, that we're going to consume this meal with Christ and his presence face to face. Would you help us to remember that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Lord, and, and we pray that you would seal this upon our hearts, this reality that you are the faithful God, Would you empower us to then be faithful in response to all that you've done for us in Christ? It's in his name that we pray, amen. Let's take a few moments for silent reflection before approaching the table.